We often refer to being extremely afraid as being frozen. Frozen in place, frozen with terror, frozen in time. Frozen is so much worse than that though. It takes time for the human body to freeze to death. Time you will spend going mad while your body shuts down. It may take as little as 10 minutes or it could take as long as two hours. In this circumstance, both will seem like an eternity. You do not know cold and you do not know fear until you are alone in both. We often talk about the madness that comes from within, but what about the madness that comes from without? We do extreme things when we are afraid. Fear, truly primal fear, is the one thing that can take us back from whence we came. Fear can strip away the years of civilization and show us the cornered animal deep down inside. What does that animal want? That's simple. To survive. Fear can expose who we are and lay us bare at the mercy of the elements, where we will have nothing left to do but stand alone and freeze. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. wonderful few weeks we have had over here at We Would Be Dead Headquarters. Yes. I feel like we did so much. Today was our field trip to the Mutter Museum in lovely Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was so fun. It was super fun. I really hope everyone had a good time. I'm glad you had a good time. I had a fantastic time. The drive up was a little crazy. Drive up was wild. <laughs> so wild. We had every weather, except snow, but every other weather we had, as well as I went through two accidents. I saw two accidents that had yes. caused traffic. Oh, and a woman on the side of the road vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> did you Sounds see her right. too or did I just see her? <laughs> I did not. I did not have the pleasure. Will and I like, couldn't believe what we had just seen. <laughs> well, it was a Sunday on during the summer. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're headed back after a wild weekend. She was for sure hungover yeah. and just like, I've got to pull over. <laughs> Probably a bachelorette weekend. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It very well could have been. I was like, oh, no. But yeah, yeah the Butter Museum was fantastic, though. It was really a, a cool time. We will definitely do it again because I know there were a lot of people that wanted to attend and couldn't because of other circumstances. Yes. So don't worry. If you couldn't come, we will go again. Also, our um, hike of horror is still happening in October. So keep your eyes open and ears open for that as we will have more information in the week's to come. The Mutter is truly among my favorite places in the world. So I'm glad to bring other people into it. Yes. Especially you. you, Leslie. I know. It is now one of my favorite places. Awesome. Okay. So that was a dream for me. Love it. 
And if you want more trips like this or if you want more exclusive opportunities like this one or discounts on our merchandise, which is in the process of arriving. Yay. Or fun little presents and the knowledge that you're helping two fiery ladies achieve their dreams. Mm. You can head on over to Patreon and pledge a little monthly donation to We Would Be Dead. As little as just $3 gets you in the cool kids club, but as much as 10 gets you free stuff. Yeah. So that's good. Uh, we have beautiful, amazing tote bags. And if you are a best fiend forever and donate $10 a month, you get a free tote bag. They are so nice. And they're so canvassy. I love them. <laughs> they're for sure made of canvas. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Also, be sure to join our Facebook page to stay in the know. We pretty much announce everything over there first. And we've made our merchandise available there first because we love our community a whole lot and we feel like you guys deserve to hear things before everybody else. And if you have not done so already, please, 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 please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. We had a couple really nice ones this week. Thank you, whoever left them. Yes, my I look so young right now. I know. I feel like feeling a little bit of rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. Hallow season is upon us, and you wouldn't want us to dry up and blow away before you get to see what we have in store for you. Witches. Witches? <laughs> I, oh, I thought you were I... like, witches. Yeah, witches. <laughs> Let's talk about that later, Leslie. God. <laughs> we already talked about it a little bit. Today's episode is kind of a spooky podcast staple. I feel like everybody kind of does this one. We hadn't anticipated covering it so soon, but it was mentioned in our Facebook group, and I thought, why not jump in? (laughs) We had nothing else planned. Yeah, (laughs) we're flying by the seat of our pants, you guys. (laughs) It's fine. So we are covering the incident at Dyatlov Pass. This case is so crazy and mysterious and has driven the internet crazy pretty much since there was an internet. So needless to say, there are a lot of sources to wade through this week. And if you do your own independent research, you're going to read a lot of other crazy stuff that we don't even cover. There's so much. But we do try to get as much as we can. I think we are pretty thorough. So a disclaimer before we begin. This story is Russian. The names are Russian. The towns are Russian. The landmarks are Russian. And as you might all know, we are not Russian. Yeah, surprisingly so. I know. What a shock. (laughs) But... We did try extremely hard to pronounce everything as correctly as possible. I have Russian friends. It's a beautiful language. Leslie has Russian friends too. And everyone in America messes it up. And that's just like not fair. It really makes me sad. They're so used to us messing it up. In fact, that they like kindly accept our ignorance and just kind of move on. It's (laughs) very sad and I don't like it. Just say people's names correctly if you can. It's not that hard. Being American is not an excuse to be rude. But that being said, we are trying our level best, and some mess-ups are inevitable. Not everything is going to be perfect, but know that we did try. Um, And we really do want to do it right. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. In the dark hours between February 1st and 2nd of 1959, deep in the Ural Mountains, nine young, experienced, and healthy Russian hikers met their end under mysterious circumstances. Eight of the hikers were expert-level outdoors persons from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and one was an instructor. They had all received two certifications in hiking and skiing, which was the highest level one could achieve at the time. Doing this meant that they all traveled over 300 kilometers, which is 190 miles, through harsh terrain in freezing temperatures. 
all hikers involved were also experienced survivalists, having spent extended amounts of time camping in all manner of conditions with just the bare essentials to sustain them. Hardcore. 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov was the group's leader and had assembled them all for what was supposed to be a trek to the frozen wasteland to reach... Oh, this is that mountain that I can't pronounce. Kora Oterten? That was pretty close. Thank you. I know there's a in there that I don't do correctly, and I'm very sorry. A mountain 10 kilometers, which is 6.2 miles, north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as Category 3. The most difficult. There are like few category threes. Mm -hmm. That's just like one of them. In this area of the world in February, temperatures can dip as low as 50 degrees below zero. It's cold that we don't even know what that feels like. Mm -mm. (laughs) The trails were rough and snow was frequent and plentiful. While this kind of journey may seem extreme, it was actually a popular pastime with young folks in the area. The remote Ural Mountains, as they are called so frequently that I was surprised the word remote wasn't actually in their name. Right. (laughs) Shockingly, do not offer a whole lot of extra chill, extracurricular activities. (laughs) And fresh air and rigorous exercise are seen as a vital part of life in their culture. So the next natural step for youths would be to plunge into weeks of dangerous camping. Yep. Obviously. Obviously. Sounds great. (laughs) The route was designed by Dyatlov's group and was reaching far northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast in the vicinity of upper streams of the Lotsva River. The route was approved by the Sverdlovska City Route Commission of the Sverdlovska, they want me to say it so many times, mm-hmm. committee, committee whew, of physical culture um, and sport. Just one sport. <laughs> On January 8th, 1959, and confirmed that the group was 10 people. Now, I know I said nine earlier. This is not a mistake. Just wait for that part of the story. So who were these robust youths? Well, they're almost impossible levels of badass. I will tell you that. We'll start with the fearless leader, Igor Dyatlov, for whom the pass was named. After his and his companion's untimely death, of course. But that's neither here nor there. It's still named in his honor. Yes. So. Igor was born on January 30th, 1936, and was described as a natural leader, brave, confident, experienced, and passionate. He was a student of the fifth faculty of radio engineering at UPI University. A talented engineer, he designed and assembled a radio during his second year that was used during hikes in 1956 in the Cyan Mountains. He also designed a small stove that he used after 1958, and he brought it himself on all of his camping trips. Friends said that he was distinguished by, oh, sorry, quote, distinguished by thoroughness in carrying out any tasks, great physical shape, balanced character, and friendly attitude towards people. He mastered the ability to do any job well, sensibly, and often originally. Man, he is quite a catch. Right? Igor was also competitively successful at something called orienteering, which is um, finding one's way through rough country um, just to hit a series of checkpoints using only a map and a compass. The person who gets there, like, hits all the checkpoints and gets to the destination and with the shortest time wins. And Igor won a lot. That's so cool. And that, that's Boy Scouts do it. Girl yeah. Scouts don't. Mm. At least they didn't when I was a Girl Scout. <sighs> but apparently there is a, a Boy Scout badge in orienteering. In case any of you guys want to get out there and or orientate. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> 
But if you're going to be bound into the terrifying frozen wilderness, you want a guy like this to be leading you. Igor was 23 at the time of the expedition. So, like, right on that guy. He's good. Uh, Next, we have Yuri Doroshenko, born January 29th, 1938, making him 21 at the time of the expedition. He was a fourth-year student of radio engineering at UPI. He had an impulsive personality and was famous at the school's hiking club for, ready, having run at a giant bear with a geologist's hammer on a camping trip. What? I'm going to say that one more time. (laughs) He ran at a giant bear with a hammer. <laughs> the bear like came towards their camp. Okay. And he just grabbed a hammer and was like, ah! awesome. <laughs> Ran at the bear. These kids are like, they're no joke. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yuri had previously dated another member of the party, Zina Kolmogorova, who stated that the bear incident was what made her fell- fall in love with him. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that man is going to protect her. <laughs> he sure as hell is. She saw him run at that bear. And then she was in love. The pair split up shortly before the trip, which always makes me sad, but they remained friendly. Zena, however, did state in her diary that it was difficult to be with Yuri, but not be with Yuri. Oh. I know. <laughs> and this leads me to believe that he was the one that did the dumping. Right? Yeah, probably. I did learn, however, during the course of my research that apparently at that time in that area, Russian women um, were not supposed to accept or want anything from a man that they used to be in a relationship with. So if you broke up with somebody, you were like, I I I want nothing of you. I can have nothing of you. You're done. I like that. I know. It's pretty good. I think maybe they were onto something. Yeah. Just like close that door. Yeah. Cut them off. But um, It didn't work the first time. It's not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So when... um, Zena accidentally destroyed her mittens in a campfire. Uh, Yuri offered her his, and she wouldn't take them for, like, a really long time, even though they were in, like, sub-zero temperatures and trekking through the snow. Oh, I heard that story. That's really funny. Isn't that good? (laughs) Yeah, she was like, no, I'm just going to be cold for a while. Um, (laughs) These are tough people. (laughs) I would have been like, yes, please, give me your mittens, and also I love you. This is torture. (laughs) I would have been so good at this. (laughs) Whatever. Clearly, I do not have the constitution for extreme Russian camping. (laughs) Speaking of Zina, her full name was Zinaida Kolmogorova, and she was born on January 12th, 1937, making her 22 during the trek. Zina, as she liked to be called, was a fifth-year student at the UPI University as a radio engineering major. They all could radio, but they didn't have a radio. I don't understand. Anyway. She was an experienced hiker who had surmounted her fair share of obstacles. During one of her trips, she was bitten by a viper. Despite pain and suffering, she refused to lighten her load, unwilling to let any of her fellow travelers carry her book bag, and just continued on viper bite to finish the trek. I would be dead. (laughs) You would, you kind of are right now. Yeah, I imagine a record scratch at this point every time I read the story. Like, I'm sorry, a snake bit her and she just kept going? Whew, and I've read it a few times. A moderate bite from a viper causes severe pain, swelling of the entire limb, and general ill feelings such as nausea, vomiting, and weakness. And yet, Zena carried her full hiking backpack, not a little bike backpack, all the way to their destination. 
So was that during this trip? No, it was during a previous trip. No, these are all origin stories. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say, I was just like, I didn't think there were snakes in the snow. No, this is why winter is my favorite. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Again, I would have immediately given up and expired on the ground. I'd be like, snake bite, I'm dead. Just just like flop. Leave me here. Leave me for the rest of the wilderness to take away. (laughs) Don't take me on excursions, you guys. Zena was very outgoing and energetic. People who knew her said that she was, quote, the engine of the university. She was, I know, isn't that great? She was always full of ideas and was liked by everyone. As a result, people were naturally drawn to her, especially children. Aw. Zena had exceptionally, like, a very social character. And despite her popularity in school, she treated everyone with fondness and respect. Well, she sounds like quite a catch. That's exactly what I have. She was a damn catch. <laughs> Beautiful, friendly, charismatic, able to unflinchingly sustain a viper bite and finish an expedition. <laughs> Everything anyone could ever want in a woman. Except for? Oh, Yuri. Get your shit together. You should love her. I'm so her. mad at him. I Can know I, I am too. I am a little mad at him. I don't know what surrounded their breakup, but I know she was sad and he was fine, which leads me to believe it was his fault. Now, yeah, I'm mad at him. Although he did offer his gloves, which means he cared. Yeah, but she was like, no, I don't want your mittens. Yeah, and he was probably like, yeah, that's my badass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he did eventually take them, so I don't know. Speaking of women um, on the trip, it was it admittedly light on them. The only other woman being the youngest member of the party, Ludmilla Dubanina, born on May 12th, 1938, making her just 20 at the time of the expedition. Luda, as she liked to be called, was the youngest of the Dyatlov group. She was a fourth-year student at UPI University, majoring in engineering and economics. Luda was always active in the institute's sports, and she loved to sing and take pictures. She was considered a pretty good photographer. Luda had considerable mountaineering experience, and during a hike through the eastern Cyan Mountains in 1957, she was accidentally shot in the leg by a hunter who accompanied the students, and she bravely suffered through both being wounded and having to walk all the way back in a painful, lengthy ordeal. Oh my gosh. They're all origin stories, I'm telling you. In February of 1958, Luda had a Category 2 um, hiking certification in the Northern Urals. She was shot in the leg and literally walked it off. These kids are Bond villains. Like, I can't. Yeah, they're not like just some kids that decided to go camping. They are serious business. I know they're probably, if we watch the same action movies together, and we're just like, like that could ever happen. They're like, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Of course it can happen. It's fine. You just keep walking. Actually, they're kind of pussies on there. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep walking. Get it together. That's all they're all... All of their themes. You just keep going forever. So next we have Alexander Kolovatov, born on November 16th, 1934, making him 24 years old at the time of the expedition. Sasha, as he liked to be called, was a student of nuclear physics. Ooh, he's smarty. He was a fourth-year student as a physics major at the UPI University. He was raised in a work camp in a gulag with just his mother and three sisters after his father was struck and killed by a train. His mother was ill, and the family survived on 200 grams of bread per day per person, 1.2 kilograms of fish or meat per month per person, 1 to 2 kilograms of rice per month, which could be exchanged for a potato during the winter. Nice. Yeah. 
So that's like next to nothing. So they starved in a gulag for a long time. After the war, his family rebounded and Sasha spent some time working in Moscow. He celebrated his 24th birthday during the expedition and his fellow hikers all came together and got him a tangerine. That was his birthday present. They spared no extravagance. I love it though. They're like, here you go, bud. Whole tangerines for you. And apparently there's also part of the story that says he immediately divided it into eight segments and shared it. Stop. I know. These are the cutest people ever. The cutest Bond villains ever. They could kill everybody. They're amazing. (laughs) Now a fun one. Yuri Krivonoshenko was a friend of Igor Dyatlov's and he took part in almost all of his expeditions. Like Igor mounted a lot of them. And these people like... Some went on a few, some went on more. This guy went on, like, all of them. Um, And he was good friends with the majority of the Dyatlov group. Yuri was born on February 7th, 1935, making him 23 at the time of the expedition. And he was still a badass, but a delightful badass who got arrested for singing. Tell me more. Yeah. (laughs) Confused? Well, so was everybody else. Apparently, Yuri got into a little tiff with Luda when he asked her for breakfast money so that the group could eat. And she said no. Breakfast was apparently an extravagance that they could not afford, even though the previous night she had spent 200 rubles on five meters of unnecessary cambric, which is like a cottony fabric you might make a dress out of. And um, one could argue that it wasn't super necessary for a group who couldn't afford breakfast. So they got in a little argument and she yelled at him and Yuri responded to her being kind of nasty by just loudly singing. (laughs) It was time for a sing fight, I guess. And then the cops, out of nowhere, descended upon him, saying that singing was forbidden, as that town was calm, where people were obedient and super communist, and then they took him off to the police station in handcuffs. Oh, yeah, because it was like the Soviet Union Yeah, then. it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no singing. It's like Footloose, but with singing instead of dancing. Okay, so remember that. Remember how easily he got arrested okay. for just singing mm-hmm. at that time, Okay. This will go into a theory later. Okay, we will all keep that in our mind. I promise. (laughs) Yuri also loved jokes, music, and to play the mandolin. He studied construction and hydraulics at UPI University, graduating in 1957. Okay, fun's over. (laughs) Rustem Slobodin was born January 11th, 1936. He graduated from the UPI University in 1958, working in Enterprise P.O. Box 10. That's the name of the town. Great. At the time of the event, he was called a, quote, very athletic man, honest and decent. Rostem and his father once hiked through harsh mountains with four other men they openly hated because they were of a different culture than they were with such spiteful intensity that the journey became legendary simply for the fact that none of them killed each other. (laughs) Why would anyone do that, you ask? I don't know. Everyone has to have a weird origin story in this tale, so best to just process that information and move on. He has a lot of tolerance. Well, (laughs) I get it. They talk about how he just, like, seethed through the entire thing of furious and, like, treks through the mountains. Like, why did you? You know what? Never mind. Yeah. (laughs) Next. Oh, this is the name that you and I both have a a difficult time with. Nikolai Thibault-Brignol. Feels like it's right to me was born on July 5th, 1935, making him 23 at the time of the expedition. He graduated in 1958, majoring in civil engineering from UPI University. Thibault was, or Thibault maybe, was noted for his energy, inventiveness, friendliness, and humor. And that's it. Okay. I guess they all can't be insane comic book villains. No. <laughs> he's just the funny one. Yeah. He's like, he was pretty great to be with. We like him. Yeah. And 
Great. The last hiker to make it through the untimely and through to the untimely end of the expedition was Semyon Zolotaryov, who was listed as the group's guide. And he also, well, I go into this in a minute. He was born on February 2nd, 1921, graduated from the Institute of Physical Education in Minsk in 1950. So Ooh. you could go to a whole school for gym. You can. I went How? to that school. You went to the University of Physical Education in Minsk? No, I went to Springfield College, okay. which they have the physical education degree. Got it. Yeah, it's This great. is a whole, whole school just for that. This is basically, nice. that, it was basically a whole school for that. Gym and dead bodies is what you yeah. went to school for, as far as Do I'm concerned. Do not call them gym teachers. They will be pissed off. Okay, we'll not call them that. <laughs> They're athletic instructors or something? I don't know. Um, Physical education instructors. Okay. <laughs> Semyon was an instructor at the Kurovka tour base at the time of his death. He was the oldest and also the most mysterious member of the group. He has to be called Sasha, and that's the name that appears in many documents and memoirs but his given name is Semyon, but people are very curious about this because Sasha is a nickname for the name Alexander, if you're Russian, mm-hmm. not Semyon. So they, yeah, I wondered that when I saw... Yeah, but that's what his name is in most places and what he likes to mm-hmm. be called. He also has a tweedly mustache and more than a few tattoos, kind of like an old-timey villain or a craft beer aficionado. <laughs> <laughs> They're the same at this point in time. Yeah. You could be both if you have that look. So many opportunities. Maybe a strong man in the circus. See? They all look the same. Think about it. They're like a singlet away. Wow. Yep. Uh, Sasha was 37 at the time of the expedition, dying, um, in fact, on his 38th birthday. Mm. Yeah. He was born um, into the family of a paramedic, and he belonged to a generation that was most greatly affected by the Great Patriotic War. The draft of 1921-1922 had only about a 3% survival rate. But Sasha went through the entire war in the armed forces from October 1941 to May 1946 and somehow remained unharmed. Wow. So he was one tough motherfucker. Wow. Mm -hmm. Like nobody lived through it. And he just like just went through it. Badass. Last but not least, we have an honorable mention. Sweetheart and survivor Yuri Yudin. Yuri was everybody's favorite. Like everyone says that. He was great. They love him. Pictures of him are smiling and precious. Mm -hmm. Uh, He began the journey with the group but fell ill on January 28th and had to return back home. The group was super sad to see him go and, like, sent him off fondly. And Ludmilla gave him a little teddy bear that she said was from the whole group. And he called it a mascot. Oh, He's like, that is my mascot from the group. I keep, like, he kept it with him like he was keeping them with him. And he kept it until the time of his death. I love that. Yeah, he's great. Didn't he had like sciatic issues, right? Yeah, like we a get sciatic to that. flare up. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was a sweet angel and suffered with quite a bit of survivor's guilt afterwards, like you would. I'm sure, yeah. Um, but he lived a relatively long and productive life. So mm-hmm. good for Yuri. Now on to the journey. The group arrived by train at, I didn't look up this one, Ev- Ivdel? 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 I V D E L. A lot of consonants, not a lot of vowels. A town at the center of the northern province of Sverdlovska Oblast in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. They then took a truck to Vijay, a village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. So this was their last chance at civilization. And from there on out, it was just all wilderness for a while. And so the group decided to stay in a hotel, which they go on to talk about in their diaries, how um, it's 
like not as good as they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. They're all lumped into like sharing beds and in a room and they're like really pretty bitter about it and it's really funny. The group enjoyed a meal and a campfire. Their spirits seemed to be high. They drank and talked and had fun. While spending the night in Vijay, the group also purchased and ate whole loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day. Kind of like um, like a runner will load up on carbs before a race. Carbo loading. Carbo loading. Do you remember? You you didn't watch that episode of what? The Office where they do like a run. I know you can't watch it. I can't watch, watch The Office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, The Office. <laughs> they do a run and Michael is... Like, he starts carbo-loading, but he gets, like, fettuccine Alfredo, and he's just shoving it into his so mouth cheese. right before he goes no! for a run. He's like, I... carbo-loading, I'm going to win this thing. I can't even eat a sandwich right before I go for a run. I'll no. throw up. Yeah, he did. All the way. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. Sounds very right. Uh, so, yeah, same principle. On January 27th, the group began their trek toward Hora Otorten from Vijay. On January 28th, as I mentioned previously, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health issues, including rheumatism, um, sciatica, like you mentioned, and a congenital heart defect. So he was like oh. kind of a sickly dude, but he still did this stuff. Wow. Which makes him also a Bond villain. There it is. Right. Um, but smart that he was like, hey, I'm having flare-ups. I can't yeah. make it. Like he still knows. Not like a viper bit me. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you just got to work out that toxic blood. Walk that shit right yeah. off. <laughs> what you have to do, or that gunshot wound to the leg. Who yeah. cares? You just push it right out with that walking. Yeah, man, it's fine. <laughs> oh, God. So Damn. this forced him to turn back due to knee and joint pain and illness that made him unable to continue hiking. And thank goodness for him. Yeah. Uh, the remaining group of nine people continued on. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. And um, we'll post a lot of the mm-hmm. pictures because they're readily available of yeah. like them being cool and having fun and them also being quite dead. Right. So um, they're, not on, they're not on that camera. The pictures of them being dead are, other, are from <laughs> science. <Yeah. laughs> they, there's nothing Blair Witchy about it. There's enough weird stuff coming on. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they bought some extra food and equipment that would be used for their trip back. The following day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems like they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions like snowstorms, which created a lower visibility, they lost their direction and drifted west up towards the top of Kolatsyakl, that's the other mountain, when they realized their mistake. The group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move just 1.5 kilometers downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the bad weather. And this is a curious decision, given that they all really did know better than to do that. Yuri Yudin later postulates that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained or... He just decided that he wanted them to practice camping on a mountain slope. hmm Which, I mean, okay. He, people make errors. I get it. Before leaving, Igor Dyatlov had agreed to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as they returned to Vijay. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Igor had told Yuri Yudin before he left that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was really no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were 
pretty common in expeditions like this one. And when you're like a crazy snow warrior, time has no meaning. On February 20th, the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army became involved with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation, but it was one of these civilian groups on skis that would eventually find them. Mm -hmm. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kolatsyakl. While the tent was damaged and covered in snow, it is important to note that the tent poles were still standing. Mm -hmm. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavin, the student who found the tent, said, quote, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. That's right, I said shoes. I have also heard um, the contents of the tent referred to as a pile of boots, like right by where the door to the tent would have been. They all took their shoes off and left them in the same place. Mm-hmm. It would look like they had all taken their shoes off for the night and like settled down and then suddenly left. Um, And they never put them on again, obviously. There were also several plastic plates near a small camp stove with slabs of pork fat cut on them ready to be cooked and eaten, which sounds gross, but it was basically bacon, and they needed the calories to stay warm. Mm -hmm. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside as a route of escape. Nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe or were barefoot could be followed, leading down toward the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers to the northeast. However, the 500 meters or 1,600 feet these tracks were covered with, of these tracks were covered in snow. At the forest's edge, under a large Siberian pine tree, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire and the first of two bodies, or the first two bodies, sorry, those of Yuri Krivonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. Where those two ended up together, and that there were three Yuris total on this small trip, but I digress. The bodies were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the large tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps their camp. Later, investigators would also find remnants of the skiers' hands, like their skin, on the boughs of the tree, as though the two had climbed and hung up there until they tore their hands apart and couldn't stay up there any longer. Yeah, rough. Between the pine and the camp, searchers found three more corpses, Igor Dyatlov, Zina Kolmogorova, and Rostev Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to find their way back to their tent. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than three months. They were finally found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters farther into the woods from the pine tree. Three of those four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had their clothes relinquished to the others. Ludmilla was wearing Yuri Krivonoshenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. This jacket was at first thought to have belonged to another hiker, but later it was found to be pieces of her own jacket. There was that little fire over by the pine tree, which can explain why things could have been burned. Um, Ken, just saying Ken, because there are lots of other explanations. (laughs) 
A legal inquest started immediately, and after the first five bodies were found, a medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their death, and it was eventually concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. However, an examination of the four bodies that were found in May shifted the narrative as to what had occurred during the incident. Three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. Nikolai Thibault-Brignol had major skull damage, and both Ludmilla Dubanina and Simon Semyon, sorry, Sasha, kill me, Sasha. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> Solitaryov had major chest fractures, so their chest was like crushed in, basically. According to the medical examiner, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to the force of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures, so it was like they had been crushed. Mm. There was no, like, lacerations or anything. And if they had been subjected to, like, a high level of pressure. All four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Ludmilla was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone, while... Zolotaryov had his eyeballs missing, and Alexander Kolovatov had his eyebrows missing. A forensic expert performing the post-mortem examination judged that these injuries all happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream. Now, there are a lot of theories that like to make this out to be super sinister, but... The truth of the matter, in my opinion, is that any body that's left for four months in a stream in the wilderness is going to have significant soft tissue damage, if not from the stream, then from, and I hate to say this, wildlife. Mm -hmm. They mention in a lot of places that there are like bears and wolverines wandering all around. Something's going to get to them. I refuse to add insult to injury here and say that the hikers were all maimed while they were still alive. I, none of me believes that. No, I don't think so either. But you will hear it, you will read it if you go to do your own research. Journalists reported a hodgepodge of these facts to the morbid fascination of the public. It was ruled that six of the hikers died of hypothermia, Ludmilla died of internal bleeding due to extreme chest trauma, Nikolai Thibault-Brignal died of a fatal skull injury, and Semyon Solotaryov died of severe chest injuries. At the time, the verdict was that the group members had all died because of, quote, a compelling natural force yes i love that that's and that's the precise wording Mm -hmm. that's that's what's on documents they're like well these people died because like something happened all done (laughs) what cool 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 we're gonna need more than that (laughs) technically i am a compelling natural force but i sure as hell didn't kill them so you sure are holly thanks lizzie (laughs) you're so nice you're so good to me so what the hell did happen to them (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you, but people still wonder to this day. We're going to do our best to plow through every theory we can remember because there are just so many. So many. Um, But here we go. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people were involved. Leslie, do you want to tell us about the Mansi? Yes, I'm up. Yeah, I know. That was so much. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, so the Mansi people live in Kanti Mansia, which is an autonomous district within Tumen region in Russia. The Mansi are known as reindeer herders and who I assume to be the inspiration for the enchanted forest people from Frozen 2. I like that we both came to that conclusion (laughs) independently and then talked about it. Yes. (laughs) Look up the enchanted forest people from Frozen 2 and that's That's them. them. They're so cute. (laughs) 
I'm sorry if we're insulting any Monsi people. That was just a little moment no, that we had. Yeah, they're great. So, okay. This theory kind of makes me sad because it's um, pretty much led by, like, racism. And oh, it's bigot. awful. Yeah, it's terrible. And they, they don't do nice things no. to the Monsi people. Um, so, allegedly, there was a Monsi Chum, which uh, Chum is a temporary dw- uh, dwelling, northeast from where the hikers pitched their tent. And a trail leading to the Chum was passing just about 200 feet from their tent. So... The Monsi could have, like, walked by and been fairly close and seen them, right? Wow. Okay. The Monsi are pretty skilled enough to hide uh, their own tracks, and they like to hunt. If they had any reason to attack, it could have been pretty easy, and they could have hidden. Like, people believe that, like, oh, they could just hide their own tracks. Yeah. And they can hunt the hikers like animals. They do this all the time. They, this is where they live, you know? Yeah. They don't hunt hikers. They hunt animals. They hunt animals, yes. to clarify. So the theory is that the Mansi may have attacked the hikers because they were trespassing on the sacred ground. The Mansi are proud and secluded people and don't like visitors, especially ones who prance about on their holy grounds. This is what the locals say. (laughs) Yeah, no, okay. I would be mad too. Fair enough. Don't go into the enchanted forest. They get really mad. Yeah. Um, There are stories of a woman geologist who was tied and thrown into a lake in the 30s because she desecrated the Monsi shrines. However, that story has no proof of ever happening. This is just one of those like weird folk tales that they say. Yeah. And also, the Monsi may be proud and secluded, but they are not unwelcoming. Um, Many locals describe them as a peaceful group, and this area was not a sacred ground. There were no signs um, that you shouldn't hike there. Oh, so nobody was, just was open. told. Yeah, like, hey, be careful where you land. Yeah. It's fine. Um, there, uh, in a, another theory, I'll mention there are like some, and you'll see them in some of the pictures. There's like Monsi symbols, like mm-hmm. on the trees and things like that, which is why people say like, oh, it's like their sacred area, but it it really wasn't. Like they just lived in that area, and they like so there would have been stuff on trees because yeah. they lived there. Yes. Got it. And they herded their reindeer. I love it. They're also said to have, I don't have this written down, but they're also said to, they ride, oh, I wish I wrote it down. It's like they rode moose into like battle. Like Moose are huge. They're huge. So they are described as like how, you know, how we would ride horses. Like they just can ride moose. How do you even get up there? I don't know. It's just, they, again, there's no record of them actually doing yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah. just another, like, folk tale that people say like, about Reindeer them. are huge, too. Yes. We miss, mm-hmm. I, I, you see, like, Santa's reindeer and they're, like, actual deer size. That is false. Reindeer are enormous beasts. Yes. They are huge. Like, freaking buffalo. So, the Mansi were brought up mostly... I think that this was more hyped up for like from propaganda, mostly yeah. about like their religion and how, um, you know, if if you believe in these false gods, they'll screw with your mind and cause you to do terrible things. And okay. so it was really just like the media and like the government kind of hyping it up mm-hmm. a little bit more than what was happening. Anyway, so if they did attack these hyper hikers, they probably would have covered all their tracks more carefully and even gone through their tent for items. There were boots, clothes, money, pens notebooks, food, and alcohol. And these would have all been items of gold to the Monsi people. So they definitely would have taken them. Some yeah, of their everything children, was there. Yeah, some of their children have never seen some of these objects that they've had. Like, they would have absolutely taken it. Mm-hmm. It made it look like the hikers had left, had, like, gone and continued on their path, you know? Yeah. Yet nothing was touched for 
ever, you know? They, everything was there when they found it. Yeah. So the Monsies were only considered culprits for a couple weeks. Several young Monsi hunters were arrested and interrogated. Um, it's rumored that they may have even been tortured, but in the end they were let go and not considered responsible. And this alone leads many, especially the present Monsi people, to believe that they weren't involved because during Soviet times, the police needed very little reason to find someone guilty. So yeah. just like the guy was singing yeah. and they were just arrested... Especially if that was somebody, if that was a Monsi, they'd been like, can't sing here, we're going to kill you. Yikes. So I read that, that they, they rounded up like a lot of the Monsi They and did. Them in. I mean, well, they did, but um, the Monsi tribe isn't that large. Okay. Anyway, so, so they could have like, rounded several up several young Monsi. It's like it, it would have, it still would have been quite a, a, mm-hmm. a lot, but there's not that many of them. Yeah. People just thought they were weird. They were secluded. But they were actually a little bit more integrated into the culture. Like, they did mm-hmm. try to be, but they just wanted to live their own life. I love the BBC interview where they say, like, we would have told each other. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, nobody because they nobody no keeps idea. secrets. We would have said something. And nobody did. So. And especially at this time. Like, they'd been like, well, yeah, it's past. All these people would have right, been Right, and dead. nobody ever said anything. Yeah, it was never us. So during the second or third week, a group of Monsi hunters aided in a search and rescue, and they were actually the ones to help find the remaining bodies. Oh, wow. Okay. They believe the hikers inhaled a chemical poison, possibly from either missiles falling, or they believe that something happened with the government. There was a government screw up. So many people believe that. But I'll get to that one last. Yes. So that's where that was. The reindeer herders. The reindeer herders. So it was not the Monsi. And I'll find some pictures of the Monsi to make sure that we include in our photo suite yes. this week. One of the prevailing theories among scientists is that an avalanche caught the group off guard in the middle of the night. Or like a, another theory is like, this is, the, it's the same theory, but two different things is like a snow shed, like just a mm-hmm. one big block of snow just got them mm-hmm. instead of like a whole avalanche. And I think that this happened in the middle of the night. On July 11th, 2020, Andrei Karyakov, deputy head of the Ural's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, that's quite a title, announced an avalanche to be the, quote, official cause of death, so now it's not just a mysterious cause, it's an avalanche, for the Dyatlov Group in 1959. Author Benjamin Radford suggests an avalanche as the most plausible explanation, stating that, quote, the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared the avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because, like I said, they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would have helped slow the oncoming snow, where they should have been camping in the first place. In the darkness of the night, they got separated into two or three groups. One made a fire, hence the burned hands, because, oh, I forgot to say, those two guys also had, like, their hands were burned. The guys by the fire. While the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing, since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the old clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. And they also say that the missing soft tissue was probably from scavengers and stuff. And this sounds pretty on the money. Like, an avalanche came thundering down the mountain in the middle of the night. They're not a quiet event. If they heard it, they might have panicked and ran. 
a lot of people say like they're too experienced to have done that, but you don't know what you're going to do when you're terrified until you are. However, there are holes in every single theory, so be ready. First, other than the destruction of their tent, there were no other signs of an avalanche near the campsite whatsoever, and those things aren't usually very subtle. Also, over 100 expeditions to the region were held since that incident, and none of them has ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The, quote, dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and corners, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. And an analysis of the terrain and the slope shows that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way around, its path would have gone past the tent. It had collapsed from the side, but not from a horizontal direction. Some people will also argue that hikers as experienced as Igor Dyatlov's group would never set up camp in a place where an avalanche could happen, but I will never discount human error. They could have just fucked up. It happens. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone. Others point to the footprints of the campers leaving on force in a panic, but I feel like I would also run from an avalanche in a panic. So that is not counter evidence in my opinion. Is there some rule I don't know about that states that we should run towards an avalanche, like leaning into a curve or swimming with a current? I don't think so. I don't know. Tell us if you know. Okay, now that we were super rational for like one second, it's time to get wild. Leslie, tell us about a Yeti. (laughs) Okay, a good one. Well, they're, you know, up north in a mountain. (laughs) You're going to find a Yeti. All right, so um, after analyzing the cameras of the hikers, one of the photos shows a figure lurking by a tree. <gasps> a yeti. The figure resembles a yeti. Or, a yeti. <laughs> <laughs> or just one of the other hikers from a distance. <laughs> or a yeti. <laughs> or a yeti. <laughs> or possibly an angry monsi who was coming after them. I don't know. Or a yeti. Or a yeti. <laughs> the yeti is the answer to the hikers who had the broken ribs and right. other bones. And who were missing eyeballs and tongues. So the Yeti just tore them apart and ate their eyeballs. Yes. Yeah. The problem here is that there are no other footprints suggesting someone or something else was there. Giant Yeti footprints. (laughs) Also, there would have been much deeper wounds found on the bodies. Because, you know, every other Yeti experience, they're like gash wounds. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yetis don't fuck around. So I'm just going to dump that one pretty fast. But... (laughs) a lot of like conspiracy theorists that will like ardently argue it was a yeti yeah <laughs> which i love so much but i guess my whole thing is again they escaped from they had to escape from inside really right. fast and i don't know like on yet unless the yeti like burrowed under <laughs> their tent and came up <laughs> through the center like <laughs> They just saw his menacing shadow, ignored the door, and ripped through the tent. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he was standing at the door, and they had to get out the other side. Maybe he just wanted some bacon. Maybe he did. Maybe he smelled that bacon. Yeah. He was like, hey, guys, I need to, like, carbo load and eat some fat. And they were like, run for your life! He was like, this always happens. God damn it. I'm just trying to make friends. I don't know. I I know... I. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to dump that one, though. In this case, I'm not against that a Yeti exists. 
I'm just going to dump that one here. Oh, my God. As fun as that would be to believe a monster scared nine frighteningly tough survivalists out of their tent in a panic, I think you're right and that we can rule that one out. Yeti supporters, though, man, I salute you. Mm -hmm. You believe in a level of magic that my brain has ruled out, and I bet you're a lot of fun at parties. Yes. (laughs) So if somebody's going to be like, it was a Yeti, I do want to sit next to them for a little while and hear what they have to say. So (laughs) that's, that's that with the Yeti. Another fun theory is that they were driven mad by something called infrasound. And as strange as it may seem, I think this one is actually the best fit. I like this one, yeah. Do you? And and it really, it has my vote. At the end, I do think this has a lot to do with what happened. Infrasound is described as sound waves with a frequency below the lower limit of audibility for human ears. According to Donnie Eicher's 2013 book on the incident at Dyatlov Pass called Dead Mountain. He said wind going around Kolatsyakal could have created a Karman, and there's a lot of accents in this one, vortex street, which is a repeating pattern of swirling vortices caused by a process known as vortex shedding. This is all very complicated, but it's a thing. And is responsible for the, the unsteady separation of flow of a fluid around blunt bodies. And this phenomenon can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. Mm -hmm. So basically, the wind can whistle at such a low frequency through the snow and the mountains and the trees that creates this kind of low sound that does horrible things to the human Mm -hmm. brain. Uh, And this is a proven fact that the sound can do this. Scientists posit that at high volumes, infrasound can directly affect the human central nervous system, causing disorientation, anxiety, panic, bowel spasms, nausea, vomiting, and eventually even organ rupture or death from prolonged exposure. So it will fuck you up. Yeah. According to Eicher's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Halachal Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Eicher claimed that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the path of the infrasound's waves and would have regained their composure. But at this point, they are already in the darkness and the freezing cold and unable to find and return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims would have been the result of them stumbling over the ledge of the ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Is this an insane freak occurrence? Yes, but all of this is an insane freak occurrence, and I find that this explanation really ticks the most boxes. But don't worry, there are still factors that I will reveal that will ruin all of these nice facts and everything else forever. But for now, let's stay fanciful and imagine a different altered reality. Uh, Let's go down that oh-so-familiar literary rabbit hole I like to call Maybe They Were All Tripping Balls. Leslie, how could that have happened? (laughs) This is my favorite one. Yeah, it's a good one. (laughs) Okay, so mushrooms are one of the reoccurring theories which could explain some of the bizarre behavior pieced together from the evidence. The idea is as follows. The Mansi practice a form of shamanic religion in which local mushrooms are used by shamans to travel to the spirit world and help those plagued by illness or to communicate with the dead. Nice. I want to do all that. The shamans value a particular mushroom, Amanita muscaria, or fly fly algaric. It's the Mario mushroom, right? Yes. The red one with the white spots. I'm getting there. Sorry. 
I was just making sure I was I thinking of the I right don't one. interrupt you. I'm Sorry. Can cut that out in post. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. They also, the shamans also like to dress up like them. Like so, the mushrooms? Yes. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Oh, let's find a picture. It's it's adorable. It's okay. great. Yeah, they're all over. Um, so like Holly said, they are the um the red top mushrooms, the white dots are like off white kind of color. So the shamans would kind of dress in these like red, like it would be basically like a red gown or whatever with I like white this. polka dots or especially when they were going into the mountains to try to dry out these mushrooms, they would also be wearing like red coats and think they would just get into the spirit of it. Like I wanna go to that party. Involved. Yeah. Again, these are the same mushrooms that we saw in every fairy tale illustration, Disney movies like Alice in Wonderland, the Super Mario Brothers video games, and the Smurfs cartoon. Oh, yeah! Cool. Yeah. The fly algaric, as far as magic mushrooms go, is particularly toxic mushroom and is not easily processed in its natural form. It is so toxic that the shamans prefer to intake the naturally occurring psychedelic in another form. Reindeer urine. No. Yes, that's right. Reindeer urine. Ew, Sven. <laughs> Their pee. <laughs> Reindeer have a physiology much more suitable for processing the toxins in the mushroom and the psychoactive component of the drug uh, Mucimol, M-U-S-C-I-O-M-O-L, uh, comes out in their urine. So shamans will collect the snow where the reindeer pee, drink it, get high, then pee again into the snow. And in an even more bizarre urine transaction, reindeer will even drink the shaman pee, creating a cycle of acquiring the drug. So Jesus. all at the same time, the reindeer and the shamans and who or whoever else is like there uh, are just all kind of high. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Everyone's full of They're Mario full. mushrooms. <laughs> so remember this. The reindeer... And the, and the people surrounding them are all a little loopy. Right, um, right. Okay, so if you have seen Alice in Wonderland, you might have now guessed that the mushroom helped inspire the book due to some of its side effects, such as macropesia, in which things look larger than they are, making the person feel small. It is also the cause, the opposite effect, micropesia. These can even occur simultaneously, creating the effect known as Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Oh, we love that. Other effects are becoming delirious, entering a trance state, sweating, and twitching. Ugh. The theory, as it applies to this case, is that the hikers may have found a bag of mushrooms hanging on a tree, something the shaman do to dry them out. So they hang them, like, in socks, little stockings. They hang them from trees. Like Santa. This is very much like Santa. I'll get to that. <laughs> and they may have experimented with them during the night. Not understanding how toxic the mushrooms are, they would have entered a nearly hypnotic state prone to easy suggestion. They may have also begun sweating and felt as though the natural environment would not harm them. In a hasty decision, they may have exited the tent by cutting it open, walking, uh, walked slowly down the hillside and built a fire. Within a few minutes, considering the conditions, the exposed hikers would have succumbed to hypothermia and the others would attempt to go back to the tent to get supplies. The mushroom theory is interesting because it explains so much of the evidence. The mushrooms definitely grow in the area, and photos taken from the hikers' cameras show Monsi markings all around the area. So, like, oh, that's yeah. where they would have, like, put them and dried them. But that's really, I mean, there's 
some more specifics, but that's it. Just they kind of went. They were freaking they were just out, man. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been the thought. So who knows, like what what they were thinking, like why they yeah. would have exited, and they would have just some been of doing the weird things. Theories that I read about that, like say that either they started panicking, and that's why they mm-hmm. ripped out of the side of the tent because yeah. they had like no concept of like there's a door. They were just like right. get out, and they ripped it out. Right. Some of them said that they like got disoriented and angry and fought with one another Mm -hmm. and that caused some of their injuries right and was why they like climbed up a tree and all kinds of stuff yeah exactly but yeah this is also these mushrooms (laughs) it's also where santa comes from in our christmas today isn't that crazy that is crazy and at first i was like okay me let's see where this goes and then i realized that so we get a lot of our christmas traditions from victorian christmas yeah if you look at a lot of Victorian Christmas cards, you will see these mushrooms in them. Yeah. And so, again, they're red and white. They are. The shaman's dressed in red and white to go <gasps> hang God. stockings Santa! of psychedelic mushrooms to dry out. Then they would come back sometimes to their yurt. We know what a yurt <laughs> we is. We love a yurt. The, the, the hedgehog that grows. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that's right. The yurt hedgehog. If you did not watch our live campfire stories, boy, did you miss out yeah. on that. Oh man. Um, when they would return from their their hike to get these mushrooms, sometimes because it was a snowy mountain, mm-hmm. the snow would cover the door. So there was an opening, a chimney to oh my the yurt god. that they would come down into, and then there would be groups of you know, small groups of people that were there waiting to engage mm-hmm. in these festivities. And it was like they were coming with presents, with treats, with stockings. Oh, my God. And they – so – and then remember the reindeer. That's right. Shit, there's also they were reindeer. The, the shamans and we're the other pee. group. Yeah, oh, we're drinking dude. pee. And <laughs> they were high. Everybody just looked like they were floating. And they're up north. They're, like, literally from the North Pole. They are. That's crazy. And so this, so that all started there. And then it got brought into, Mm -hmm. out, you know, slowly into, like, European culture and then our culture. And, and yeah. I mean, you are in charge of Christmas Eve, so I expect a lot this year. We're going to bring it back. Get it back to its roots. (laughs) Listen, after the kids go to bed, we're all going to have stockings full of mushrooms. Yeah. I believe that most of our society has been built on people who have taken mushrooms or some sort of psychedelic drug. I that is another chat that. for another day, but yes. I definitely am up for it. Okay. Because I just wrote a paper on psychedelic drugs as medicine. So yeah. I get it. Okay. That's a good one. So- <laughs> oh, man. We got a lot with that. Yeah. Leslie went deep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping they didn't take the mushrooms. But who knows? Yeah. I mean, they were they were kids. If they saw it's, them hanging there, they to me they were like hikers though. Like they probably they, they were probably like thought in they were it. something they could eat too. They were like we're hungry. I know. I think they would have known what you they do? were okay. because it it was um it was a known plant there yeah. or a fungus there. Okay, so they grow under like pine trees, and there's a ton of pine trees. Right, and so they're all there. They would, yeah, but I I don't know that they would have taken it because they were all. In their like sport at the time, yeah. and I don't think that they would have. Gone I also for think it. it's like a really fun explanation, but it doesn't really pan out the way other things would. They're just like, oh, they were freaking out and they panicked. That's not. That's a. That's assuming a lot. That's put- okay, Todd. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> put down the joint. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a lot on those yeah. hikers, <laughs> and like conditionally making them like this. They did this one thing that they might have done, yeah. and we're just gonna mm-hmm. run with it, right? But it is interesting. Yes. 
That was a good one, Leslie. Thanks. So another natural freak possibility is something called catabatic wind. A catabatic wind is a drainage wind or a wind that carries high-density air from a higher elevation down a slope under the force of gravity. Such winds are sometimes also called fall winds. A catabatic wind originates from a radiational cooling of air atop a plateau, like a mountain or a glacier or even a hill, and they're on a mountain. Since the density of air is inversely proportional to temperature, the air will flow downwards, warming approximately, ooh, this is a word I didn't look up, adiabatically, as it descends. The temperature of the air depends on the temperature in the source region and the amount of descent. In the case of the Santa Ana winds, for example, the wind can but does not always become hot at the time it reaches sea level. In Antarctica, by contrast, the wind is intensely cold. This would have, of course, been in the cold territory. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site of the Dyatlov Pass, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind is a likely explanation for the incident. Catabatic winds are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at the Anaris Mountain in Sweden, where eight hikers were killed, which is strikingly similar, and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of a catabatic wind. The topography of these locations were noted to be very, very similar according to the expedition. A sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent, and the most rational course of action would be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow once they escape to pin it down, and seek shelter among the tree line. There was also a torch left turned on top of the tent, possibly left there intentionally so the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. The expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two improvised shelters, one of which collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the violent injuries observed in the ravine. So that's another possibility. Giant wind, I'll try to blow them away like a kite, and it would have rattled the tent in a way that they like couldn't get the door, like working with the door wouldn't have been possible. Everything would have been moving too much. So the easiest thing to do would have been to pull out your knife and make a slit in it to run. So that's presuming that their like location is now unstable, and that's why they're running from the side of it like that. There are a lot of strange natural possibilities. And I think we, we, have, a, we have room for one more strange natural phenomenon, cool. right? Sure. Let's get at it. <laughs> Ooh, all right. So this one is called ball lightning. Which we will come back to in other cases because it is implied in other places too. Yeah. Okay. So ball lightning has been reported for centuries. The orbs are typically about the size of a grapefruit moving slowly over the ground. Uh, They have been seen during electrical storms, which has led scientists to believe they are just a different form of lightning. However, many ball lightning accounts have occurred without without thunder or lightning storms. That's crazy. They just, like, are there? Mm -hmm. So this leads scientists to believe ball lightning is simply light trapped inside a a sphere of thin air. Basically, photons ricocheting in an air bubble of their own making. I bet that is amazing to look at. Yes. It it looks, it's very cool. And I hope I explained this right. I have read, I probably read like three hours on. Oh my gosh. I am a physicist now. Great. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I tried so hard to make this up. You got it. Understandable. You got it. Okay. It's been a long day. I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) This light, this sphere, the sphere Mm -hmm. will usually disappear after about 10 seconds. It's 
been known to last for a couple minutes, maybe at most, but the average amount is like 25 seconds. It'll disappear either quietly or sometimes with a bang sound that can be heard, and often sulfur smell, too, is left over. Ew. They have even been observed to pass through closed windows. What? I thought that was crazy. Yeah, well, like no, they can I go through glass. I have read that. Like it can appear in like your house and stuff. Yes. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Which is a thought. It might, it could have either appeared in their tent. camper, in their mm-hmm. tent, or like on the outside. That would make me rip my way out of a tent. Yeah. For sure. Especially if you had no idea what it was. Absolutely. You know, this like ball of light. Yeah. Um, Yikes. The light is usually either red, orange, yellow, white, or blue. From some of my research, the orange and blue colored ones seem to last the longest, uh, which is the color that they'll have seen. From my understanding, the there needs to be some sort of electrical force that causes this to happen, which is why it's usually like a lightning that happens. Yeah. But it could be from any uh, anything happening within the thin air. They're in like a cold, staticky place. Exactly. So yeah, like, that's not that be, far. Yeah, just the right circumstances could just, have happened. Just think how easily like things shock when you're when it's cold like in the mm-hmm. winter that you're so more prone to like static and stuff like that. Right. And the sphere is thought to emit electromagnetic radiation. Ooh, mm-hmm. that's going to come back. Yeah. So researcher Nigel Evans presents the theory of ball lightning as it pertains to our story. So this is a long quote but this will give you the whole breakdown. Go ahead. Quote, the tent slits hot spot near the tent and a camera on a makeshift tripod suggest that they were observing something in the sky. Given that the local Muncie people blamed the golden orbs for the tragedy and the repeated sightings of lights in the sky from reliable witnesses in the same period together with photos from the group's cameras, possibly of aerial lights, it is plausible that the group fled from the tent due to an occurrence of ball lightning. So that the ball lightning was getting very close to the tent and hovering there, melting the snow beneath to create the hot spot. Interesting. The group then hurried to the tree line 1,500 meters away and lit a fire whilst they waited for the object to disappear. The theory then describes how the two deaths at the cedar were due to single electrocution event due to normal lightning strike or ball lightning, creating burnt hair, bleeding head orifices, large burns, burnt clothing, pulmonary edema, and tree damage, and the subsequent four deaths in the ravine due to an explosion event near the den again due to a more powerful lightning strike or ball lightning. Mm. Although cold weather lightning is rare, it is possible. See, uh, there's a there's some pictures we'll, we'll put up. For sure. <laughs> uh, the theory suggests that the ravine lightning strike hit close to the den and vaporized the substantial quantity of stream water, snow, and ice, positive polarity strikes, and produced 300,000 amps and temperatures several times hotter than the surface of the sun. Wow. Uh, So that's pretty normal. Like, lightning is, like, so much hotter than the sun when it hits the ground. Yeah. Well, lightning leaves very specific scarring on people Mm -hmm. called Lichtenberg figures, too. Yeah. We don't see that, but... No, no. They're beautiful. Right. (laughs) This creates an explosion amplified by the confines of the ravine that threw the den and its occupants 6 to 10 meters, resulting in blunt force injuries similar to a car accident or um, barrow trauma. The theory suggests that the three surviving members died in two groups, uh, Rustim Slob- 
Bowden was injured and urgently had to be returned to the tent, assisted by Zena. Due to snowdrifts and high winds, he collapsed on the journey, and Zena also further on due to the same plus exhaustion from the effort of assisting him. So mm-hmm. she, yeah. Um, Igor remained with the ravine for as uh, Ludmilla and Sasha, although badly injured, stayed alive for some time afterwards and Nikolai was unconscious. Igor may have stripped the two bodies at the cedar, turning the bodies to provide more insulation for those still alive and possibly contributed some of his own. Sometime later, he decided to abandon his vigil and return to the tent, but died being the only member of the group to have clear signs of hypothermia. Police officer Lev, oh, sorry, I didn't look up this last name. Lev Iv- Ivanov, what is it? Or is it, is it Ivanov? Ivanov. 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 Or they say his name a couple times. He yeah. did a lot of work on this. Yes. Um, he was the lead officer. He believes that... He favors the fireball theory for multiple things. So he doesn't... Interesting. It's He thinks that it has to do with these this orbs that is seen. Yeah, a lot of people, even in like the the neighboring village of Vijay, say that they saw orbs in the sky. Yeah, so there's place. other hikers and skiers in the areas and the town and the Mansi the the Mansi had seen it too. Yeah, so yeah. there were these like three orbs that were up there. Um and they saw them for however long yeah, and that yeah. was it so it was documented that they were there and there's um in some of the pictures there's something that might look like they had taken a picture of this orb interesting one of the main downsides to the story is that mm-hmm. these a ball lightning generally doesn't last longer than a few seconds mm-hmm. so the way that it sounds in the story is that it would have had to have been like they would have had to have been running from it for like a couple hours. Like it was chasing them. Yeah, and they would have been like hiding in the trees and trying to get away from it, like getting above ground to like be away from it. But like it would have had to last for a while and that doesn't really make sense for this. It would have like dispersed. But the radiation effect um, that could have caused it would have caused them because they found some radiation on the body. Yeah, we get to that. So yeah, that's one one That's thing, very interesting. It's very interesting. I think there's a lot of holes to it. But there's a lot of holes to everything. Yeah. But again, again like, there could be like several things happening. I think it is a combination probably, yeah. but we'll get to that after okay. we finish all the options. Um, And also, like I said, like lightning strikes almost always produce a very um intricate web of scars called Lichtenberg figures. Mm-hmm. And they look like vines crawling all over yeah. your skin or like or almost like veins or something. But they're they're very specific right and i think that they almost always happen i'm not sure if that's frequently mm-hmm. that they don't i, I didn't look it up because i wasn't mm-hmm. thinking of it but like but this wouldn't have been the same as so I was as gonna, that's what i was gonna ask so yeah. would it look the same as a lightning strike I don't or think no so because it would have just been it wouldn't have been a big force from the sky coming down it would have been this little ball that i think would have caused like i think it it emits a, a lot of heat. Well, the, the them, scarring so is like been... the the electricity burning its way through your body. So yeah, you yeah, see yeah. this like pattern on their skin. Yeah, I, I'll post a picture of it because yeah. it's super interesting to look yes. at. That's a good one, though. I like mm-hmm. that theory. I mean, I wish it it checked more boxes because it's so very interesting. But mm-hmm. like, it's possible. And the ball theory, ball lightning theory, like we said, does check out with some locals and the Monsi and other hikers. Reporting seeing mysterious lights in the sky around that very same time. And we have other theories for that too. But first, all of these natural freak occurrences are plausible and science tells us that they are even probable. But why in their under why were they in their underwear and in various states of undress? Mm-hmm. Well, if you listen to my What the Friday this week, you'll probably be jumping out of your seat right now. 
because all of that can be explained as well. All the theories that we have explored thus far leave the um, hikers too far from their tent to find their way back and suggest that they froze to death. Or the ones that fell in the ravine obviously died from their injuries, but a lot of them ended up dying of hypothermia. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, freezing isn't a great way to go. 20 to 50% of hypothermia deaths are associated with a strange behavior called paradoxical undressing. This typically occurs during moderate and severe hypothermia, which I think we can all agree that would be what was happening in 50 below snowy climates that the hikers were all thrust into. As hypothermia progresses, the person becomes disoriented, confused, and combative. Combative, sorry. They then begin to discard their clothing as their confused brain is telling them that they're not really cold. In fact, they're super hot. So their brain kind of crosses signals. Now, there are a lot of like super sciencey explanations for that, but I don't want to like divert too much. But it does happen way more often than people might think. If you're freezing to death, a lot of times you take your clothes off. So that would explain why the two of them would have just been laying there in their underwear. They could have done it to themselves. Mm -hmm. And also, the the thing that throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in it, but not too much, is the fact that um, a lot of people that would have been like mountain survivalists would be familiar with this. They would know that that happened. Um, And another weird little fact to throw in that is that a lot of times when people die in urban settings of hypothermia, like say people who are homeless or lost their way or whatever, police will will say that they were sexually assaulted because they find them naked. But almost always they have taken off all of their own clothes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned in my other thing, I said um, they also are a lot of times do something called terminal burrowing where after mm-hmm. they do that, they'll hide yes. like in a little tiny tight place. Like if you're in a park, you would try to find yourself in a bush or behind a bench. In the snow, a lot of times they'll bury themselves in the snow mm-hmm. trying to like your brain, your lizard brain takes over and it just says hibernate and you just dig down and that's what you're, you're like the animal inside you takes over mm-hmm. and does that. Which I don't think they really buried themselves in the snow. I don't think that happened, but like. Those are both really interesting things that do happen when you freeze to death. And the undressing is not as weird and, and totally out there as a lot of people make it out to be. It's, in fact, relatively common. 20 to 50% is a pretty high percentage rate for something like that. Right. Especially yeah. since it was two out of nine. Yeah. So <laughs> that definitely pulled off all their clothes. hmm So anyway, now back to the weird lights in the sky. Okay. Leslie, <laughs> what else makes... Weird lights in the sky. Well, it's not the Monsi. Nope. It's not the Yeti. Nope. So it's probably aliens. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Another group of campers located some 30 miles from Dyatlov's campsite on the same night report a small circular sphere flying over the village from the southwest to the northeast. The shining disc was particularly the size of a full moon. A blue-white light surrounded by a blue halo. Ew. So this would have looked a lot like the ball ball lightning. lightning. Uh, The halo brightly flashed like the flash of a distance lightning. When the sphere disappeared behind the horizon, the sky lit up in that place for a few minutes. The lead investigator on the case, which we talked about, Lev, how did you say it? I think it's Ivanov. Ivanov. I think that's it. I know I'm pronouncing it slightly differently. Is it Ivanov? It's not that... Ivanov. I was trying to make it harder on myself. Because it's Ivanov, yeah. Also, I've listened to seven different people pronounce it seven different ways. So So we're the eighth. Yeah, nice. Ivanov. We've covered every pronunciation (laughs) of his name. 
He has gone on record to say that he does not agree with the former conclusion of the Soviet Union that the incident was simply the avalanche. This is a quote. I suspect at the time and almost sure now that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's death. So radiation was found on the bodies, which we'll go into. Mm -hmm. Friends of the funeral have said that their skin looked almost tan in the caskets. Yeah. Uh, There are photos um, taken of the bright lights in the sky. The spheres look like they are changing shapes while levitating in the night sky. So there's a couple photos that were taken, Mm -hmm. and they look like they change shapes throughout. The last picture taken by the Dyatlov's group is of a bright, blurry object in the distance. The lack of evidence of an attack is also the reason many believe it to be aliens who could easily cover their tracks or might not even need to put their feet down on the ground. They just hover or they're yeah. tiny. We don't know what they are. They're yeah, aliens. and they could just be like sending whatever they have no like, feet. We don't know. supernatural powers they have to like do blunt force traumas and For sure. all this stuff. As Travis, he'll tell yeah. you. And, you know, maybe they were trying to hide in trees to get away from them. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe they got thrown in trees and were hanging there. I don't yeah. know. Could be anything. anything could have happened. Um, you know, maybe they were getting lifted up by the sphere and they, like, grabbed onto the tree branches for daylight. Also light. possible. And then their skin got left. So many things. So it could be aliens. Or not. Or a Yeti. <laughs> or a Yeti. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe they're teaming up together. Maybe it's alien Yetis. Ooh. Yeah. Didn't think about that, did you? I did. I did think about it. <laughs> <laughs> if one of us was going to think about that, it was yeah. you. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Basically, all of the theories that, especially that Holly has brought up with like the avalanche, like anything that could have happened to these people, everyone could just explain it away with aliens. Yeah. That's a know? nice blanket thing that you yeah. can say, well, they did everything because we don't know what they do at all. Right. Yeah. Is that all your aliens? That's all my aliens. I hate it. All of this is great, but there is one key fact that I have purposefully left out, and we just touched on it, but until this point. After the year, the initial discovery, the hikers were taken in for a government-level examination. No one was allowed to see them, and their organs were all spirited away to a place never to be named again. So their organs are all gone. We'll get back to that in a second. And their clothing was found to be significantly radioactive. Not like a little tiny bit radioactive, like you might find by accident or something, but like they probably could have glowed in the dark. (laughs) Like it was quite a bit. And all their friends who like friends or people who like helped recover the bodies um, or who saw them at their open casket funeral. I can't believe that. I cannot. All their bodies were so compromised and they had an open casket. I can't judge. (sighs) Yikes. I can't. I don't judge. I just can't believe it. I can't either. (laughs) Uh, But they definitely did have it because there are people that report looking at them and they all claim that their skin had a rusty orange tint to it and that Igor Dyatlov's hair had turned gray. Yeah. So I know. What the ever-loving fuck? Why are they radioactive? (laughs) Because we couldn't throw one more thing into the fire. Every single hiker's family agrees that they stumbled into the path of a military nuclear experiment. They all believe it's government stuff, every single one. There are some wild theories that I do not honor in this podcast mm-hmm. out there where they claim, like, they they saw too much and so they faked their deaths and then the military, like, you know, staged the whole thing. I don't think that's what happened, but there are some people that say that. 
some say that it was like missile testing and the missiles were somehow radioactive yeah. and the radioactivity caused them to panic and run out of the tent. Um, and then it could have caused the burns and all of that stuff. The missiles could have also caused the blue. Oh, yeah. All lightning. of this stuff. There's mm-hmm. more. Believers of those theories claim that the campsite also might have fallen within the path of Soviet parachute mind exercises. Mm-hmm. Mind, not mind. Sorry. Mind exercises. That's way more interesting. This theory alleges that the hikers, woken by the loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supplies. So this was just like explosions all around them. So they just freaked the fuck out and ran out of the tent, which you would do if there were explosions all around you. After some members of the party froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others went on to take their clothing as a last-ditch effort to stay warm, only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. There are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma, and the theory coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and alleged allegedly photographed by them and they would also potentially be a military aircraft descending with the parachute mines or the mine themselves so the different shapes could be the like explosions and the fact that there was a bunch of them because they explode midair they don't hit first so they would look like that ball of light so yeah this theory among others also explains any kind of soft tissue damage um to scavenging animals i think we can just agree that that's what happened Some people speculate that the bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during an autopsy, as well as burns to the hair and skin. Now, liver mortis, if I haven't explained this before, is the reddish-purple bruisey marking that appears on a dead body wherever it was making contact with the ground or, like, wherever it was. Like, so wherever it was laying, the part of it that's, like, where you're laying on will turn, like, a big, long bruise color because that's where gravity makes your blood pool and so it looks like that but it will often show the position the body is was in when it died and and was left somewhere dead sometimes bodies that are moved a little while after death will show liver liver mortis that is inconsistent with the way they were found and therefore medical examiners or forensic pathologists will be able to prove that the victim had been killed elsewhere so that's what they're claiming here they're claiming that liver mortis proved that they were you know they could have been different and the military moved them afterwards or some crazy shit like that yeah However, from every I've all the autopsy reports that I've seen and I've read them, liver mortis on the hikers indicated that they all died in the positions they were found in. There are lots of people that want to argue that, but there are a lot of people that say like they would never have been face down. How do you what? They were like freezing to death slowly. You don't know that they wouldn't have been face down or that they wouldn't have been disturbed by animals or anything else. So, right. but that's some people's argument. A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons and is partly based on the discovery of a radioactivity on some of their clothing, as well as the bodies being described as orange. Um, However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and their equipment instead of just some of it. And the hair and skin discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after the three months of exposure to the cold and winds. Because if you've ever seen a mummified body, even like, I'm not talking like an Egyptian mummy, I'm talking like things that were left, anything that was left out. It looks like your skin will tan. It will go darker orange just by the natural process by which you're drying out and the salt 
does it's the salt in your body does its thing. And they were out in the cold and the wind. I mean, look at any of like the ice, like the Iceman body and stuff. They, right. they look orange. Furthermore, the initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is something mentioned as evidence of a cover-up. But the concealment of information regarding domestic incidents was standard procedure in the USSR and therefore far from peculiar. In the late 1980s, all the Diatla files had been released in some manner. The local Mansi, however, did report that they were instructed not to herd their reindeer in the area the hikers were found in for four years around their disappearance. It is suspected that this was a precaution taken to avoid radiation exposure on the Mansi and their reindeer. Oh, and the organ thing? Any body that you you go and observe, they, their organs are not in them. Like if there is an autopsy performed or something, I believe they take them out and they come separate. They don't put them back in. So yeah. it's not enormously weird that an autopsy was performed and their organs were taken. Okay. You wouldn't want them or need them. Sometimes they come along with the body. Sometimes they do not. I suppose if you don't, if they didn't want to keep them, they just got rid of them or stored them somewhere. But it's not weird that their bodies were returned without them. Mm-hmm. That happens. There's also one theory that I didn't, I don't have written in and I I could kick myself because it's the first one I I talked about. Um, There are also some theories that I mentioned way, way back in the beginning of this that Igor Dyatlov had um, designed a camp stove that he brought with him on his expeditions. Now, there is a theory that something went wrong with the camp stove in the middle of the night. Like they had obviously cooked on it. There was like the bacon Mm -hmm. slabs were out and stuff and they had used it. And some people suspect that it like never shut off all the way or was left on and it caused like a fire in the middle of the night. And they woke and they saw that it was, the tent was like on fire or like not the tent because the tent didn't burn, but they saw the thing happening. And then they ran to the other side of the tent to exit because it would have been closer to the door. And, you know, then they went out into the cold and fell or did all the other things that happened, but they were running away from like a fire. So that's another yeah. another thing that has been, you know, suspected. Mm-hmm. And there are countless other real weird theories. We didn't even get to mention everything. Some think the disappearance was a teleportation experiment that went awry. Yeah. That's a good one. Some think wolverines chased them out of their tent. Some even think it was the KGB. Some people think some of the campers themselves were spies and organized Mm -hmm. this event. I don't like to give credence to that either because I think that's kind of mean. I guess in the end, we'll never truly know what happened. But I sure would like to hear your guesses. Yes. Um, So anybody who is listening, if you want to talk about it, go over to our Facebook group and tell us what you think happened. Leslie, what's your, what do you lean towards? I know. I think it's a mix of the government and aliens. I no, think you it, do not. I do. I think the alien, I think that they had an alien. No, because I like aliens. I don't think that they're mean. <laughs> um, I don't, I think it was a mix of things. I do too. I don't think any of these one things can be the, the, the thing. Yeah. I definitely think there's a lot of merit to the infrasound theory because mm-hmm. that would explain them just like losing their mind and running out of the tent. Yeah. But then I think once they got away, the paradoxical undressing and the hypothermia just kind of happened. And the mushrooms. I, and the, all, the, all the mushrooms, man. Wouldn't it be Saints fun if- it came early. Sure did. <laughs> or I guess he Actually came late. late. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most fun of the theories. Yeah. I also think that there is merit to like some sort of military testing occurring because yeah. there's no other explanation as to any of the radiation on them. Just none. Mm-hmm. So it could have been something like that. Um, and that was a weird time in Russia, too, wasn't it? Isn't that – when when did we go to the moon? That was in the 60s. Yeah, so they were like – there was just a lot of testing and stuff 
like nuclear testing and trying to get to that was like the space race. There was just during shit that going on. So I there mean, was a lot of things happening in Russia at the time. Yeah, I mean, that, it's not difficult to believe that. The, and this, this is like a remote, yes, mountainous region. You wouldn't think like this is going to be dangerous for lots of people. Right. I guess what I always find interesting though is like there were there's rescue teams that like went out to get them. I I just always find it interesting when like they went to go hike. Yeah. And something terrible happened to them, but now all these other people are going out there and they're all coming home fine. Like I you know what I mean? That's what I think it was like one of those things that was a super freak occurrence. Yes. Because it was never repeated and people have since gone out there mm-hmm. and done the same hike and yes. made it to the top of that mountain I can't pronounce. Right. Um which is why also I Totally discount the Monty having anything to do oh, with it. Oh, me too. It was. I mean, not I know them. that was a while ago, and who that knows? That was total maybe they racist, changed, but it malarkey. absolutely was. Yeah. No, yeah, I I totally agree with yeah. that. But a lot of those weird, like freak incidents, make sense. It could have been a combination of them waking up because of the infrasound, and also there's a fire, and also there the or the wind happened. The wind makes a lot of sense because it would mean that the tent's door was disabled because of the motion in the tent. That makes sense why they would cut their way out of it. But in the end, like we're just never gonna know right i think there was a yeti at their door and then it got real windy and then there was a fire and the aliens came down and then the government got the aliens and everybody burned up in radiation and clawed out their own eyeballs the end and then we all took mushrooms great that's right right figured it out we nailed it (laughs) it's so sad i feel so bad for them and their families yeah and And their families like don't love and i feel a little bit badly recounting it because i know they don't love that people are like can't Grab. Let it go. They can't. They also uh, say that they understand it. They're very much like, well, we get it. This is like a crazy mystery. They, We would like to put it to bed. They all believe it was the military. Um, mm-hmm. But we get that people just like the unknown is so – is such an itch in your brain that you want to read. You want to know. You want to see. Like, what do you think? We all yes. want to be the one that solves it. You know? I don't think I'm going to be, but, you know, Mm-mm. put it back out there in the world. Maybe one of you guys is going to solve it. Mushroom aliens. Yes. Nuts. <laughs> oh, that would be adorable. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. Wow. Mushroom aliens. Mushroom aliens. We solved it, you guys. Oh, oh man. Wow. So, I know. That was... I feel like I ran a race. I know. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, this will be like a short one this week. Yeah, me too. And then no. it, went, it went pretty far. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. I know. Thank you for hanging there, Leslie. Thank you. <laughs> I know the beginning was like a marathon of backstory, but I feel like if we're going to talk about- interesting. They were an interesting group, and I didn't know all of that. Because I don't get to hear that stuff when I research the story. Yeah. They get like right down to like the nitty gritty, but- Yeah, that's why I felt like it was kind of important that if we're going to continually talk about their horrible death, like we should know who they were in life. And they were like crazy cool and interesting. Yes. So- Yeah. It was really unfortunate. Who knows what awesome- contributions they could have made to the world had they been able to continue on with their lives so um toast okay we're obviously gonna toast the hikers this nine all ten i'll toast all ten of them little yuri yuri love them yuri number three yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and whatever it was they they went through like Mm -hmm. we can't even possibly imagine and leslie actually tipped me off to this quotation it's really nice the members of the search party who actually found them on skis, discovered in the tent a flask of vodka. Like you said, there was everything was Mm -hmm. still in the tent. And they said like, well, you know, clearly they don't need it and we're very cold. We'll 
have a drink after they after they found the bodies. They went mm-hmm. back and got it, and they opened the vodka and decided that they should clearly toast to the hikers, saying that they would toast not to their health but to their eternal rest. Yeah, and I think that we should do the same. So I think that's it for this week. Should I sign us off? Oh, we have a toast, a, pa- a new patron. Oh, we do have a new patron. We just got one yeah. today. The fabulous, the miraculous, Shana Murray. Woo! Shana, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. And um, we'll have a fun little package in the mail for you. Anybody that wasn't on our trip today that is one of our patrons, we're going to get um, an email going where you can send us your mailing address mm-hmm. and we will send you your little gifties in the mail. Yes. Um, so thank you for supporting us. Don't forget to get those reviews. And we have 39 right now and I just love round numbers and I really want it to be 40. Actually, I'm super sorry, but 39 is like a favorite number of mine. Is it? Can Isn't we, that weird? Can we get to like 139? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, cool, cool. Or three. I need threes. I need. Okay. Let's Two and eight people. are my lucky numbers. Oh. Here, two threes. Okay. And anything that three can go into evenly. All right. <laughs> we all have our things. <laughs> and if we went on a harrowing journey through the remote Ural Mountains, even under normal circumstances, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. think there was a yeti at their door and then it got real windy and then there was a fire and the aliens came down and then the government got the aliens and everybody burned up in radiation and clawed out their own eyeballs the end and then we all took mushrooms